Chapter 4, Section 2 of Manual of Egyptian Archaeology and Guide to the Study of Antiquities in Egypt by Gaston Maspero. Translated by Amelia B. Edwards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter 4, Painting and Sculpture. Section 2, Technical Processes. The preparation of the surface about to be decorated demanded much time and care. Seeing how imperfect were the methods of construction, and how impossible it was for the architect to ensure a perfectly level surface for the facing stones of his temple walls and pylons, the decorator had perforce to accommodate himself to a surface slightly rounded in some places and slightly hollowed in others. Even the blocks of which it was formed were scarcely homogeneous in texture. The limestone strata in which the Theban catacombs were excavated were almost always interposed with flint nodules, fossils, and petrified shells. These faults were variously remedied according as the decoration was to be sculpted or painted. If painted, the wall was first roughly levelled and then overlaid with a coat of black clay and chopped straw, similar to the mixture used for brick-making. If sculptured, then the artist had to arrange his subject so as to avoid the inequalities of the stone as much as possible. When these occurred in the midst of the figure subjects, and if they did not offer too stubborn a resistance to the chisel, they were simply worked over. Otherwise, the piece was cut out and a new piece fitted in, or the hole was filled up with white cement. This mending process was no trifling matter. We could point to tomb chambers where every wall is thus inlaid to the extent of one quarter of its surface. The preliminary work being done, the hole was covered with a thin coat of fine plaster mixed with white of egg, which hid the mud wash or the piecing, and prepared a level and polished surface for the pencil of the artist. In chambers or parts of chambers which have been left unfinished, and even in the quarries, we constantly find sketches of intended bas-reliefs, outlined in red or black ink. The copy was generally executed upon a small scale, then squared off and transferred to the wall by the pupils and assistants of the master. As in certain scenes carefully copied by Pris from the walls of Theban tombs, the subject is occasionally indicated by only two or three rapid strokes of the reed. Elsewhere, the outline is fully made out, and the figures only await the arrival of the sculptor. Some designers took pains to determine the position of the shoulders and the centre of gravity of the bodies by vertical and horizontal lines, upon which, by means of a dot, they noted the height of the knee, the hips, and other parts. Others, again, more self-reliant, attacked their subject at once and drew in the figures without the aid of guiding points. Such were the artists who decorated the catacomb of Seti I and the southern walls of the Temple of Abydos. Their outlines are so firm and their faculty is so surprising that they have been suspected of stenciling. But no one who has closely examined their figures, or who has taken the trouble to measure them with a compass, can maintain that opinion. The forms of some are slighter than the forms of others, while in some the contours of the chest are more accentuated and the legs further apart than in others. The master had little to correct in the work of these subordinates. Here and there he made a head more erect, accentuated or modified the outline of a knee, or improved some detail of arrangement. In one instance, however, at Comombo, on the ceiling of a Greco-Roman portico, some of the divinities had been falsely orientated, their feet being placed where their arms should have been. The master consequently outlined them afresh, and on the same squared surface, without effacing the first drawing. Here, at all events, the mistake was discovered in time. At Karnak, on the north wall of the Hyperstyle Hall, and again at Medinet Habu, the faults of the original design were not noticed till the sculptor had finished his part of the work. The figures of Seti I and Ramesses III 
were thrown too far back and threatened to overbalance themselves, so they were smoothed over with cement and cut anew. Now the cement has flaked off, and the work of the first chisel is exposed to view. Seti and Rameses III have two profiles, the one very lightly marked, the other boldly cut into the surface of the stone. The sculptors of ancient Egypt were not so well equipped as those of our own day. A kneeling scribe in limestone at the Giza Museum has been carved with the chisel, the grooves left by the tool being visible on his skin. A statue in grey serpentine in the same collection bears traces of the use of two different tools, the body being spotted all over with point marks, and the unfinished head being blocked out splinter by splinter with a small hammer. Similar observations and the study of the monuments show that the drill, the toothed chisel, and the gouge were also employed. There have been endless discussions as to whether these tools were of iron or bronze. Iron, it is argued, was deemed impure. No one could make use of it, even for the basest needs of daily life, without incurring a taint prejudicial to the soul both in this world and the next. But the impurity of any given object never sufficed to prevent the employment of it when required. Pigs also were impure, yet the Egyptians bred them. They bred them indeed so abundantly in certain districts that our worthy Herodotus tells us how the swine were turned into the fields after seed sowing in order that they might tread the grain. So, also iron, like many other things in Egypt, was pure or impure according to circumstances. If some traditions held it up in odium as an evil thing and stigmatised as the bones of Typhon, other traditions equally venerable affirmed that it was the very substance of the canopy of heaven. So authoritative was this view that iron was currently known as Ba-en-Pet, or the celestial metal. The only fragment of metal found in the Great Pyramid is a piece of plate iron, and if ancient iron objects are nowadays of exceptional rarity, as compared with ancient bronze objects, it is because iron differs from bronze, inasmuch as it is not protected from destruction by its oxide. Rust speedily devours it, and it needs a rare combination of favourable circumstances to preserve it intact. If, however, it is quite certain that the Egyptians were acquainted with, and made use of, iron, it is no less certain that they were wholly unacquainted with steel. This being the case, one asks, how they can possibly have dealt at will upon the hardest rocks, even upon such as we ourselves hesitate to attack, namely diorite, basalt, and the granite of Cyrene. The manufacturers of antiquities, who sculpture granite for the benefit of tourists, have found a simple solution of this problem. They work with some twenty common iron chisels at hand, which after a few turns are good for nothing. When one is blunted, they take up another, and so on till their stock is exhausted. Then they go to the forge and put their tools into working order again. This process is neither so long nor so difficult as might be supposed. In the Giza Museum is a life-sized head produced from a block of black and red granite in less than a fortnight by one of the best forgers in Luxor. I have no doubt that the ancient Egyptians worked in precisely the same way and mastered the hardest stones by the use of iron. Practice soon taught them the methods by which their labour might be lightened and their tools made to yield results as delicate and subtle as those which we achieve with our own. As soon as the learner knew how to manage the point and the mallet, his master set him to copy a series of graduated models representing an animal in various stages of completion, or a part of the human body, or the whole human body, from the first rough sketch to the finished design. Each year these models are found in sufficient number to establish examples of progressive series. Apart from isolated specimens which are picked up everywhere, the Giza collection contains a set of 15 from Saqqara, 41 from Tanis, and a dozen from Thebes and Medinet Habu. They are intended partly for the study of bas-reliefs, partly for the study of sculpture proper, and they reveal the method in use for both. The Egyptians treated bas-relief in three ways, either as a simple engraving executed 
by means of incised lines, or by cutting away the surface of the stone around the figure, and so causing it to stand out in relief upon the wall, or by sinking the design below the wall surface and cutting it in relief at the bottom of the hollow. The first method has the advantage of being expeditious, and the disadvantage of not being sufficiently decorative. Ramesses Third made use of it in certain parts of his temple at Mednat Habu, but as a rule it was preferred for stelae and small monuments. The last-named method lessened not only the danger of damage to the work, but the labour of the workmen. It evaded the dressing down of the background, which was a distinct economy of time, and it left no projecting work on the surface of the walls, the design being thus sheltered from accidental blows. The intermediate process was, however, generally adopted, and appears to have been taught in the schools by preference. The models were little rectangular tablets squared off in order that the scholar might enlarge or reduce the scale of his subject without departing from the traditional proportions. Some of these models are wrought on both sides, but the greater number are sculptured on one side only. Sometimes the design represents a bull, sometimes the head of a cynocephalus ape, of a ram, of a lion, of a divinity. Occasionally we find the subject in duplicate, side by side, being roughly blocked out to the left and highly finished to the right. In no instance does the relief exceed a quarter of an inch, and it is generally even less. Not but that the Egyptians sometimes cut boldly into stone. At Mednet Habu and Karnak, on the higher parts of these temples, where the work is in granite or sandstone and exposed to full daylight, the bas-relief decoration projects full six and three-eighths inches above the surface. Had it been lower, the tableau would have been, as it were, absorbed by the flood of light poured upon them, and the eye of the spectator would have been presented only a confused network of lines. The models designed for the study of the round are even more instructive than the rest. Some which have come down to us are plaster casts of familiar subjects. The head, the arms, the legs, the trunk, each part of the body, in short, was separately cast. If a complete figure were wanted, the disjecta membra were put together, and the result was a statue of a man or of a woman, kneeling, standing, seated, squatting, the arms extended or falling passively by the sides. This curious collection was discovered at Tanis and dates probably from Ptolemaic times. Models of the Pharaonic Ages are in soft limestone, and nearly all represent portraits of reigning sovereigns. These are best described as cubes measuring about ten inches each way. The work was begun by covering one face of the cube with a network of lines, crossing each other at right angles. These regulated the relative position of the features. Then the opposite side was attacked, the distances being taken from the scale on the reverse face. A mere oval was designed on this first block, a projection in the middle, and a depression to the right and left vaguely indicating the whereabouts of nose and eyes. The forms become more definite as we pass from cube to cube, and the face emerges by degrees. The limit of the contours is marked off by parallel lines cut vertically from top to bottom. The angles were next cut away and smoothed down, so as to bring out the forms. Gradually the features become disengaged from the block, the eye looks out, the nose gains refinement, the mouth is developed. When the last cube is reached, there remains nothing to finish save the details of the headdress and the basilisk on the brow. No scholar's model in basalt has yet been found, but the Egyptians, like our monumental masons, always kept stock of half-finished statues in hard stone, which could be turned out complete in a few hours. The hands, feet and bust needed only a few last touches, but the heads were merely blocked out and the clothing left in the rough. Half a day's work then sufficed to transform the face into a portrait of the purchaser and to give the last new fashion to the kilt. The discovery of some two or three statues of this kind has shown us as much of the process as a series of teacher's models might have done. Volcanic rocks could not be cut with the continuity and regularity of limestone. 
the point only could make any impression upon these obdurate materials when by force of time and patience the work had thus been finished to the degree required there would often remain some little irregularities of surface due for example to the presence of nodules and heterogeneous substances which the sculptor had not ventured to attack for fear of splitting away part of the surrounding surface in order to remove these irregularities another tool was employed namely a stone cut in the form of an axe applying the sharp edge of this instrument to the projecting nodule the artist struck it with a round stone in place of a mallet a succession of carefully calculated blows with these rude tools pulverized the obtrusive knob which disappeared in dust all minor defects being corrected the monument still looked dull and unfinished it was necessary to polish it in order to efface the scars of point and mallet this was a most delicate operation one slip of the hand or a moment's forgetfulness being enough to ruin the labour of many weeks the dexterity of the egyptian craftsmen was however so great that accidents rarely happened the sebekum saf of giza the colossal rameses the second of luxor challenged the closest examination the play of light upon the surface may at first prevent the eye from apprehending the fineness of the work but seen under favourable circumstances the details of knee and chest of shoulder and face prove to be no less subtly rendered in granite than in limestone excess of polish has no more spoiled the statues of ancient egypt than it spoiled those of the sculptors of the italian renaissance a sandstone or limestone statue would have been deemed imperfect if left to show the colour of the stone in which it was cut and was painted from head to foot in bas-relief the background was left untouched and only the figures were coloured the egyptians had more pigments at their disposal than is commonly supposed the more ancient painters palettes and we have some which date from the fifth dynasty have compartments for yellow red blue brown white black and green making in all some fourteen or sixteen different tints black was obtained by calcining the bones of animals the other substances employed in painting were indigenous to the country the white is made of gypsum mixed with albumen or honey the yellows are ochre or sulphurate of arsenic the orpiment of our modern artists the reds are ochre cinnabar or vermilion the blues are pulverized lapis lazuli or silicate of copper if the substance was rare or costly a substitute drawn from the products of native industry was found lapis lazuli for instance was replaced by blue frit made with an admixture of silicate of copper and this was reduced to an impalpable powder the painters kept their colours in tiny bags and as required mixed them with water containing a little gum tragacanth they laid them on by means of a reed or a more or less fine hair brush when well prepared these pigments are remarkably solid and have changed but little during the lapse of ages the reds have darkened the greens have faded the blues have turned somewhat green or grey but this is only on the surface if that surface is scraped off the colour underneath is brilliant and unchanged before the theban period no precautions were taken to protect the painter's work from the action of air and light about the time of the twentieth dynasty however it became customary to coat painted surfaces with a transparent varnish which was soluble in water and which was probably made from the gum of some kind of acacia it was not always used in the same manner some painters varnished the whole surface while others merely glazed the ornaments and accessories without touching the flesh tints or the clothing this varnish has cracked from the effects of age or has become so dark as to spoil the work it was intended to preserve doubtless the egyptians discovered the bad effects produced by it as we no longer meet with it after the close of the twentieth dynasty egyptian painters laid on broad flat uniform washes of colour they did not paint in our sense of the term they illuminated 
just as in drawing they reduced everything to lines and almost wholly suppressed the internal modelling so in adding colour they still further simplified their subject by merging all varieties of tone and all play of light and shadow in one uniform tint egyptian painting is never quite true and never quite false without pretending to be the faithful imitation of nature it approaches nature as nearly as it may sometimes understating sometimes exaggerating sometimes substituting ideal or conventional renderings for strict realities water for instance is always represented by a flat tint of blue or by blue covered with zigzag lines in black the buff and bluish tones of the vulture are translated into bright red and vivid blue the flesh tints of men are of a dark reddish brown and the flesh tints of women are pale yellow the colours conventionally assigned to each animate and inanimate object were taught in the schools and their use handed on unchanged from generation to generation now and then it happened that a painter more daring than his contemporaries ventured to break with tradition in the sixth dynasty tombs at Deir el gabrawi there are instances where the flesh tint of the women is that conventionally devoted to the depiction of men at saqqara under the fifth dynasty and at abu simbel under the nineteenth dynasty we find men with skins as yellow as those of the women while in the tombs of thebes and abydos about the time of thothmes the fourth and horemheb there occur figures with flesh tints of rose colour it must not however be supposed that the effect produced by this artificial system was grating or discordant even in the works of small size such as the illuminated manuscript of the book of the dead or the decoration of mummy cases and funerary coffers there is both sweetness and harmony of colour the most brilliant hues are boldly placed side by side yet with full knowledge of the relations subsisting between those hues and of the phenomena which must necessarily result from such relations they neither jar together nor war with each other nor extinguish each other on the contrary each maintains its own value and all by mere juxtaposition give rise to the half-tones which harmonise them turning from small things to large ones from the page of the papyrus or the panel of sycamore wood to the walls of tombs and temples we find skilful employment of flat tints equally soothing and agreeable to the eye each wall is treated as a whole the harmony of colour being carried out from bottom to top throughout the various superimposed stages into which the surface was divided sometimes the colours are distributed according to a scale of rhythm or symmetry balancing and counterbalancing each other sometimes one special tint predominates thus determining the general tone and subordinating every other hue the vividness of the final effect is always calculated according to the quality and quantity of light by which the picture is destined to be seen in very dark halls the force of colour is carried as far as it will go because it would not otherwise have been visible by the flickering light of lamps and torches on outer wall surfaces and on pylon fronts it was as vivid as in the darkest depths of excavated catacombs and this because no matter how extreme it might be the sun would subdue its splendour but in half-lighted places such as the porticoes of temples and the antechambers of tombs colour is so dealt with as to be soft and discreet in a word painting was in egypt the mere humble servant of architecture and sculpture we must not dream of comparing it with our own or even with that of the greeks but if we take it simply for what it is accepting it in the secondary place assigned to it we cannot fail to recognize its unusual merits egyptian painting excelled in the sense of monumental decoration and if we ever revert to the fashion of colouring the facades of our houses and our public edifices we shall lose nothing by studying egyptian methods or reproducing egyptian processes
End of chapter 4, section 2. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.